Our very existence depends on this. This black strength. Strength that has carried us for decades, but is undermining an important aspect of our humanity and feeding in on itself. Being strong all the time took away our ability to speak about our weaknesses, our sadness, our mental illnesses. This silence is killing us. Welcome to another episode of the Black Doctor Speak podcast. Black Doctor Speak is your source for vetted, accurate information on African-American health from some of the nation's top doctors and is sponsored by the African-American Wellness Project. Our guest today is Dr. Leroy Graham, a pediatric pulmonary specialist and founder of Not One More Life. And we'll discuss fighting for breath, asthma, and the African-American community. I'm Jason James, executive producer, and I'm joined by our esteemed host, Dr. Michael Lenore, a physician, medical reporter, and past president of the National Medical Association. Dr. Lenore, what's the latest on the coronavirus pandemic? Not such a good week, Jason, for the struggle against the coronavirus. The death rates in the United States has reached over 200,000. All over Europe, people are reverting to lockdowns. And recently, the CDC said that the coronavirus can now be transmitted by droplets more than six feet from people talking and singing. Two-thirds of the states have reported an increase in cases over the last week. So it doesn't look like we're doing a good job. The most ridiculous statement of the week was made by our attorney general. He said that what we're doing to protect people from the coronavirus is the worst infringement on civil liberties since slavery. How ridiculous. We all know that we have to sacrifice for other people to get through this pandemic. But to equivocate sheltering in place, social distancing, wearing a mask, with being put in bondage, beaten, lynched, and denied a freedom for 300 years, is an insult to the American people and to African Americans. A couple of things we do know, that this attorney general is an embarrassment to himself and to the administration that hired him. He will not protect our freedom and he will not give us justice. And finally, the administration who last week said that if you didn't have symptoms, there's no need to get tested, reverted back to some reasonable position based upon the political pressure. Uh, it was a ridiculous suggestion in the first place knowing that we must test in order to trace and to reduce the hot spots, at least, in this virus. Already there are so many cases uh, in colleges and elementary and high schools that it becomes difficult to support going to school at all. So it just has not been a good week. But it's about to get better for those with asthma. Our special guest is Dr. Leroy Graham. Dr. Graham is one of the world's experts on asthma in children and asthma in the African-American community. Dr. Graham was educated at Georgetown University, got his training in the Army and his pulmonary fellowship from the University of Colorado. I started our interview by asking Dr. Graham, why is the coronavirus so deadly in the lung? Well, coronavirus is a novel flu virus. What it basically causes is a very, very serious pneumonia. And as a result of that pneumonia, it really impairs the ability of the lung to exchange oxygen and carbon dioxide, a basic function to support the rest of the body. And why is it so devastating to people with pre-existing conditions? Well, what, what it appears to be, Mike, is it appears to be a disruptor. It disrupts the normal control systems that keep things into balance. So basically, if you have hypertension, you come in, your left heart's not working very well, and then you get this pneumonia, and it kind of makes everything worse. 
Uh, if you have kidney problems, similarly, you can't get rid of the excess water that's associated with it. If you have other problems, immune problems or things like that, you get secondary infections. So it's almost like it comes in and it takes advantage of what other problems you have. And that's why we think that particularly minorities who may have other conditions that are poorly controlled have been so susceptible. This couldn't be good for patients with asthma. No, not at all. And in fact, some of the early data shows that it, along with the other diseases I mentioned, asthma was a very big factor because this does cause inflammation of the lungs and the, the various passageways in the lungs, which is where asthma acts. So it, it kind of makes all of that worse and, again, leads to a reduction in oxygen and kind of a vicious cycle where the lungs' ability to exchange oxygen and carbon dioxide uh, and body tissues is very, very disruptive. So asthma is kind of like leaning into a left hook when uh, coronavirus gets there. You know, you and I have been working on asthma in the African-American community for a very long time. Why does asthma have such an impact on morbidity and mortality in the African-American community? I think there's a multitude of factors. But one thing that comes to mind is often African-Americans have substandard housing. They live in crowded conditions. They're uh, exposed to various sources of pollution, even in the urban environment where they tend to cluster around central traffic corridors, so they have much more impact of the pollution of just, you know, busy streets and highways and so forth. They also often live in substandard or overcrowded housing. And overcrowded housing, living with many other people, they are susceptible to the colds that other people bring in. Overcrowded or substandard housing may have problems with cockroaches and things, which we know they can develop very significant allergies to, and that makes it worse. And then I think we move into the social determinants where often they're not as likely to have access to the best therapy. Sometimes we have situations where they can't get in to see a specialist, and we know that compounded with allergies and other reactions to things in their environment, it just makes kind of a, a perfect storm. Clearly, we know that African Americans have much more prevalent or much more common asthma, and it tends to be more severe. Is it a different disease in African Americans? Well, that's an interesting point, and many people speculate that it might be because it seems to be that they're much more susceptible to this inflammatory process. They tend to have a higher rates of sensitization, which means that they're allergic to things. So I think when we see asthma full-blown in African-Americans, at least clinically, it does appear to be a, a, a different disease, but certainly a more severe disease. When you see a child who has asthma or an adult who's not well-controlled, what is your thought process about how you go about managing that patient, especially with the medications? Well, first off, I take a history. I think about the environmental factors. But I also know that these, this group of patients has much more severe asthma, so I'm going to have to go a little bit harder or more aggressive. Uh, they tend to respond very, very well to the anti-inflammatory medications. These are steroids and other agents, but they are in inhaled form. They're fairly safe. Uh, oftentimes, we find that African-Americans have been using the quick-release medicine, the albuterol, which is a bronchodilator that opens up the airways, Actually, overuse of those medications can actually make things worse, particularly if you're not treating the root cause, which is inflammation or irritation of the lining of the airways. So the first thing I think about is I think that there's an inflammatory process that I have to bring into control. So I have to be very aggressive with those anti-inflammatory agents, which are typically inhaled steroids or sometimes steroids by mouth in severe cases. What about if they don't respond to the usual uh, treatments with the rescue medicine? Like albuterol, right. and I would like to reemphasize the point that treating yourself with albuterol is not uh, treatment. I mean, people with albuterol are in the emergency room more and have more difficulty. 
But once you can't control it with the normal maintenance medicines like the inhaler corticosteroids, what's left for the patient with asthma? Well, there's a whole burgeoning or new field of biologics. These are uh, medications that address particularly significant parts of the inflammatory, the inflammation. And these are very expensive drugs, but these are drugs that should be used in the most severe patients. One of the problems that I have, Mike, just as an aside, is it's often much more difficult to get these medications for patients that are either on public insurance, like Medicare or Medicaid, or patients that may not have insurance. These are very expensive. They were developed for severe asthma, and they just don't seem to get to those people that have the most severe asthma. And, you know, we tend to have those patients in large numbers within our practices. Oh, absolutely we do, and, and that's one of the things that you see is that patients that take a have a large percentage of African-Americans do have a heavy load of very significant and very, often very severe asthmatics that occupy a lot of their care time, and you're, you're really trying to find the right thing for them. One of the things that we uh, face when we deal with patients in the urban inner cities is the lack of adherence to programs that we set up for them. What are some of the things that you do to improve adherence, and how important is the asthma action plan? I think the action asthma plan is the most important uh, component of any asthma therapy because it gives the patient a roadmap to do when they have symptoms. I think sometimes the problem that we face is that many of these patients have been going to the emergency room or acute care centers where they're loaded on with albuterol and, and maybe they get a steroid by mouth. Neither of those should be construed or ever considered as maintenance or preventive therapy that bring about control. So the biggest challenge that I personally face, and I think a lot of providers would agree, is patients are over-reliant on quick-release medication which at some point stops working. And that's what we know, that a lot of the patients that unfortunately succumb to asthma have been using albuterol over and over again and have never controlled the underlying inflammation. So one of the things that I always challenge patients with is that we want to bring in the concept of control. And patients often say, well, you know, when I get bad, I just grab my albuterol. Well, you keep grabbing your albuterol, and it works until it doesn't work. And that's when we find patients in extremis going to the ER, the ICU, and unfortunately patients dying because the quick-relief medications are not working and they're not being adequately treated for the basic inflammation that exists in their lungs. Well, you know, one of the things that I admire most about you, even though you're the very, very busy uh, pediatric practice, pulmonary practice in Atlanta, Georgia, you felt the need to reach out into the African-American community to improve circumstances for many more people. Tell us a little bit about Not One More Life. Well, Not One More Life was founded almost 25 years ago when I lost a very cherished patient to asthma. And it struck me that no matter what I had done and no matter what the parents had done, he was an example of something that existed in the community in terms of, you know, the, the kind of problems that we saw. And it dawned on me that I needed, I needed help. I needed more people in the community to be knowledgeable. We are people of community. And so I thought, I looked around and who are the other people in the community that hold respect, that are the so-called trusted messengers? And that's how I tumbled onto the idea of the black clergy. If you look at our history, back in the days when there was no social safety net, there were no social workers, people went to the churches when they needed things. So the churches were trusted places of resource when you had trouble. So I started a program where I started talking to concerned black clergy, and I tried to educate them about asthma. I showed them how prevalent it was. In fact, one of the things I did when we started, I asked everybody to stand up. I had two or 300 pastors uh, assembled at the Marriott Hotel. And I said, all of you that have never, never preached a funeral where someone died of asthma, sit down. Mike, nobody sat down. I got out to four or five funerals before I cleared the room. 
And it just showed, and it kind of dawned on them that this was something that was robbing a lot of life. I also found that by educating the churches, uh, I, I inculcated trust. I was able to develop trust. I also found that if I went to churches and did programs where we screened people with asthma using validated symptom questionnaires and simple lung function testing, I picked up many people who had symptoms of things like recurrent bronchitis or I get a cold all the time that in reality had pneumonia. And there was evidence that many patients who did very badly with asthma, their first attack, uh, they got them to a hospital, got them in the ICU. And then I was struck, as you have, that many of these patients, when I took a history, they've had asthma all along. So by enlisting a trusted partner in the community and, and helping the clergy become aware and using that trusted environment, we were able to screen people. And we did, we did that and continue to do that. And it's a way of getting information out into the system, into the system with a trusted resource being the black clergy. Now, you've been all over the country with this program. Uh, and you've done uh, good work in all of these cities. What evidence do you have that this has affected those communities in a positive way? Yeah, a lot of the, you know, this wasn't a research project, so a lot of it is anecdotal. But as I travel around the cities that we've been to, they tell me about going to a Not Woman Life program. They tell me about coming home, taking their asthma more serious, reaching out to a relative who had suggestive symptoms. So where, whereas this is not data points in a typical research, it becomes a community, and that's the way we learn about things. And I go across the country where we've done not woman life, and that legacy of people becoming more aware of asthma, becoming more comfortable with how it's treating, is, is, is very evident. And I get feedback from the pastors as well. Well, it does seem that, uh, you know, both from your endorsement and from my experience, that you have made a, a permanent difference in the lives of so many uh, people with these programs. But recently, you decided to join a larger group, the Asthma and Allergy Network. Tell us why. Well, I'll tell you, one of the things where's your first question, how did I know we were having an effect? I could see it on an observational basis. But what struck me is I needed scalability. And scalability came from merging with uh, Allergy and Asthma Network, which is headed by Tanya Winders, a very, very good advocate. And what this is, it brought more resources. It, it allowed me to have a lot of my materials, my educational materials standardized. It allowed me to have more resources to travel to different cities. It allowed me to have a better audience and actually got me involved a little bit in, in, in uh, actually doing some uh, canvassing and going and doing some lobbying where I was able to go with them and meet congressmen and so forth and talk about this problem of asthma. So I think it took a, a good idea and it made it a great idea by giving it scalability and additional resources that I was not able to get myself. Recently, you kind of made a mojo turn as we used to say in the old days, uh, you changed <laughs> directions in some ways and started dealing with the coronavirus epidemic in our communities. And what happened and why and what resulted? Well, like everybody else, at the early part of the year, I started to see that this COVID was getting very bad. I started reading a couple of articles, one most notably in the Atlantic Magazine, and it actually talked about where are people dying of COVID. And it gave a lot of the early experience from New York, uh, where literally 60, 70 percent of the patients coming in and 60, 70 percent of the patients dying in the early phase were people of color or African-Americans. This got me very interested, and that interest was even peaked when I found that one of the most significant comorbidities that that was associated with people doing poorly was indeed asthma and COPD, along with hypertension, heart disease, and diabetes, but a lot of patients with asthma and COPD. I started looking to and actually interviewed some people for an editorial I wrote, and they talked about these people coming in with conditions like asthma, COPD, heart disease, and diabetes who were already poorly controlled. 
And then the COVID came in and, and just kind of disrupted everything. And these people died very precipitously in the early stages. And then still to this day, though we've gotten better at treating them, uh, African-Americans and poor people in general make up the great preponderance of the people that are dying. So this, this took me back to my experience with asthma. Here's a, here's a disease that is disproportionately impacting people of color and people of less resources. So it was a natural pivot for me to start doing something like that. And I kind of went back to the, what had worked before in partnership with the Allergen Asthma Network. We started talking up uh, going into churches and, and doing mass screening, but combining with the screening, doing education. And just this past week, we did our first one at Ebenezer, Martin Luther King's Church, and we screened probably about 250 people. But all of those people came in and they got their blood pressure checked. They got their blood sugar checked. Uh, we did little histories in terms of where they were in terms of their symptoms. And we also told them about COVID. We also told them and gave them, we had flu vaccines. We gave flu vaccines because we know that's heading into flu season and pneumonia season. We're going to have another surge. And I was struck by the same tools, the same sense of trust that was brought about by partnering with the churches worked here. And next week, uh, we're told we're, we're going down to another church. They already have almost a 1,000 people signed up. And uh, we fortunately have a, got a large grant from an industry partner to get the best kits. And I'll tell you something, Mike, that came really interesting is that uh, we got an incredible ally. Uh, Major Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms heard what we were doing, and she says, you know, I've got some extra PCR kits, which are more definitive testing, and she threw in with us and kind of endorsed our effort. So this is kind of how I kind of went from asthma to COVID, basically because once again, here I see something that's very prevalent in the community that is disproportionately impacting people of color and people who are poor in terms of how much we see and how many die. One of the things, uh, since, you had, since you had this opportunity, to go into this community and have one of the screens. What did you learn that you didn't know? Well, I learned that basically a lot of us didn't know much about COVID. I understood that a lot of people saw this as something else that got, got other people. They didn't realize that there these other conditions, which some of them quite frankly knew that they uh, had, they didn't realize that they played a role. The other thing I found that was alarming is as we know, uh, the Affordable Care Act is, is under attack. And, and it's getting more and more difficult to people get in. The current administration is trying to deconstruct it. I found an alarming number of patients who either were uninsured or sorely underinsured. And this, this just scared me because it was like seeing the same thing over again. But a lot of the people that came in yesterday when we were up, or two days ago when we were up at, uh, at Ebenezer, we saw a lot of street people. We saw a lot of homeless people. We saw a lot of people that were living in multi-generational homes where they talked about somebody got sick and it kind of spread through the, the family. We're seeing all the same risk factors that I saw with asthma. Now we're important with COVID. And I also saw the fact that at ratios of two to three to four to one, black people are succumbing to COVID greater at a greater rate. Well, you know, this kind of project would not be possible without a, a major partner. Uh, that's one of the things that has hampered us many times through the years. I, I did have a chance to talk to Ms. Tanya Winders, who is the CEO and president of the Asthma and Allergy Network to see why they decided to get involved. Thank you again for the opportunity to be here, Dr. Lenore. Um, Allergy and Asthma Network is a grassroots patient education, patient advocacy organization that is now made up of over 2 million members across North America. And we've been dedicated to ending needless death and suffering due to allergy, asthma, eczema, and related conditions like COPD and COVID 
And especially in our mission, we in our policy and advocacy area, we've been focused on righting the health inequalities and reducing disparities that definitely are impacting our community. The entrance of the COVID virus epidemic, pandemic, uh, is something kind of new for you. Uh, how do you integrate that into all the other things that you're doing? So Allergy and Asthma Network um, actually realized back in, around the first week of March that uh, COVID was here to stay for a while and that our community was greatly concerned. And so beginning on March 17th, we started offering COVID-19 webinars to our community. And to date, we've held 13 webinars and had over 50,000 people engage in, the, in a variety of different topics. Um, we also have developed a COVID-19 information center that has a lot of uh, infographics, frequently asked questions, a lot of resources to help people really in their day-to-day -day manage their anxiety around COVID, reduce their risk of COVID, and certainly if actually diagnosed with COVID, know how to treat it, where to move, how to move forward, and, and again, maintain that routine care for their underlying conditions like asthma and COPD that may make it worse. It certainly seems like the Allergy and Asthma Network has stepped up, and hopefully your example will set the example of other larger organizations um, that understand that we cannot uh, change the dynamics in underserved and African-American communities alone. This is such an interesting and effective program. Can this program be duplicated uh, in many other churches and in many other areas? I think it absolutely can, Matt. What was what was a critical step for was getting funding, and we were able to secure funding from Sanofi Genzyme, which is a multinational uh, pharmaceutical company that produces some of those medications I talked about, the new medicines for asthma. And I was talking to a a colleague there that I knew in another context, and I was telling him about it, and he was very interested and knew the statistics, and basically went to his leadership and went to fund this because they thought it was in keeping with the same posture they had in terms of dealing with disparities in asthma. So I think the way that this can do, the way that this can be expanded is if we are successful again next week in terms of getting a large volume, this is a scalable program and we can bring other partners, other industry partners in and we can start to look at other cities like Chicago and like New York because the model, the model is the model and I have no doubt that it will work elsewhere. Uh, people are getting fatigued with testing. They're getting confused with the, all the types of testing. Well, we picked the best evidence-based uh, testing methods. We found a way to get people through really quick. And I'll tell you, Mike, we were there 48 hours ago, and right now people are getting results because we've teamed up with a lab that could turn around in 48 hours, even with the possibility of doing a second test that really shows that people are not only have the disease but are still infectious. So, again, the key point here was getting an industry partner that gave us the bandwidth and resources to do this. And you know, we've always, you and I have always found that even though we had limited resources, the African American community was especially interested in our programs uh, and generous with what they had to try and, and move them along. Uh, Bobby, what would you say, uh, what is your final word on where we need to go to reduce the statistics associated with asthma for African Americans? We're third more likely to die from asthma, African-American women with highest mortality rates. What else do we need to do besides programs like yours to change these statistics? I think we need to go, we need to take this educational model into the school and the workplaces. I think we need to be resolute in terms of getting this information out and tune our message 
not just a global kind of mayonnaise message that fits everybody, but a message that goes directly to people of color who suffer most. We need to build critical allies in the community, such as churches, such as schools, such as cooperative agencies, and so forth like that. I think we also need to talk to payers, because payers, be it CMS, you know, community medical service like Medicaid or Medis Medicare, they will tell you that asthma is one of their highly, most highly costing uh, things that they have to pay for. So we need to show them with demonstration projects that we can ground these people and reduce the amount of hospitalization and costly expenditures. But I think we need to almost look at it like we're looking at COVID. It's a national crisis. COVID's going to come and go. But asthma's still going to be here, and we're not doing a very good job. We have to do better, particularly in, in terms of people of color and the poor. And I know we share the same experience. That no child should die from asthma. Very few children and adults should be hospitalized with asthma if things are done right. So, Dr. Graham, thank you very much for taking the time. And once again, let me stop and thank you for the good work that you've always been willing to do in behalf of this group of people and patients. Dr. Graham, let me thank you for joining us today and sharing the information, not only about asthma, but about your uh, project. I'm hopeful that with the success of this project, we will be able to do some things in other parts of the country to reduce these terrible statistics that still exist in the African-American community. Well, thank you, Mike. You've been very kind. But I'm going to let your audience know that you have been a mentor to me from the very early part of my career. And I'm only continuing the kind of things and the kind of passion that you demonstrated. So I thank you, Michael. Well, I appreciate your comment. And I didn't even pay you to say it. Insightful and necessary information about a disease that I personally struggle with. So I thank Dr. Graham for being with us. We're going to do things a little differently today, as I'd like to take our last few minutes to discuss the census with all of you. Now, for those of you who don't know, the deadline to respond to the 2020 U.S. Census is September 30th. That's next Wednesday. So many people say, why is the census important? Well, about $675 billion are at stake, and our responses help direct that money toward our communities, our schools, our roads, and more. Now, in terms of healthcare, that means hospitals, healthcare clinics, and healthcare programs like Medicaid, Medicare, SNAP, CHIP, Violence Against Women, and many other public healthcare services that use population statistics from the U.S. Census Bureau. Now, on a social and political note, filling out the census is a form of activism. In response to the recent displays of injustices on black people, some of us are protesting, some of us are writing to our elected officials, and some of us are encouraging policies. But one thing that we could all do, especially those in the black community, is to make sure that we are being counted in the 2020 census. One of the most important things is that every 10 years, the results of this census are used to reapportion the House of Representatives, which means they use the census to determine how many seats each state gets in the House of Representatives. Now, recent numbers show about 94% of the country overall has been counted, and that's good. But in some states like Louisiana, those self-response numbers are just 58.9%. And in places like Georgia, it's 61.1%. And we need to make sure that we're encouraging everyone we know to respond when a census taker comes to the door or to self-respond simply online, by phone, or by mail. It is so simple to do. Simply go to 2020census.gov. From 
any device, your computer, your phone, or your tablet, and you can respond right there. You also can respond with a paper questionnaire, which everyone should have received by the mail, or by phone. And if none of those work, please make sure to answer the door, wearing your mask, of course, when a census taker comes into your community and to your door. Now, one thing that often gets said is that people are concerned about their safety of their information when they report. One thing you need to know is that it's against the law for the Census Bureau to publicly release your responses in any way that can identify you or your household. This information is anonymous. By law, your responses cannot be used against you and can only be used to produce statistics. So your information doesn't go to law enforcement, ICE, or anywhere else. It is 100% safe. And if you are one of the people who have already responded to the census, thank you and great job. But we need to make sure that we're holding each other accountable the same way we're gonna hold each other accountable for voting. So please talk to your friends, talk to your family, and encourage them to respond as well. Ask five people in your network if they've done it, ask them if they've registered to vote, and let's make sure that this season we stand up, we're counted, we're heard, and we make a difference. Again, the website is 2020census.gov. Together, we can do this. Yes, Jason, that's all the time we have for today's program. Everybody needs to get involved in the census. Everybody needs to register to vote. Everybody needs to vote. So I'd like to take the time to thank those of you listening to our podcast and hope you will listen every week. We appreciate your comments and questions. And remember, health is your biggest asset, so protect it. Black Doctor Speak is a weekly podcast sponsored by the African American Wellness Project, the Markel Lenore Endowment, and the Dan Weinstein Family Fund. Continue the conversation on social media with us at Black Doctor Speak on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn, and on Twitter at Black Doc Speak. And if you enjoyed our show, please remember to hit the subscribe button so that new episodes are delivered directly to you every week, as well as rate us on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, iHeart, Amazon, or wherever you get your podcast. And remember, listening to our show is as simple as telling your Alexa, Siri, or Google to play the Black Doctor Speak podcast. Take care, everyone.